Hello and welcome back to Wavelength. Our guest today is the CEO and co-founder of Operatics, a company that helps B2B tech companies to accelerate their notoriously long sales cycles. His name is Aurelien Mottier and he's also the host of the B2B Revenue Acceleration podcast. I'm speaking to him to get his insights into the behavior of decision makers in B2B tech as we aim to predict their next moves. I hope you enjoy. Hi Aurelien, how are you doing today? I'm very good. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for having me. How are you? I'm doing very well, thanks. It's always a, always a pleasure to, to get in touch. And, you know, congratulations. Uh, I just wanted to say, first of all, on reaching 145 episodes, I believe, of the uh, B2B Revenue yeah. Acceleration podcast. How does the, how's that feel? Has it been a big undertaking? Yeah, it's good. You know, it's. Uh, I was against it to start with. I'm going to be honest. Uh, I, I was not too sure about podcasts. Um, I was thinking, God, you know, it's kind of putting us on a pedestal or whatever. Do we really want to do that? But then my marketing leader, a lady called Katarina, insisted that she was a good strategy. Uh, and, and really why we did it is it was to create content. Mm. Uh, back in the days, I would write a blog post. Uh, it would take me half a day to write a blog post because I don't like doing it. It would be a good one at the end of it, but I was just very reticent to do it. So it, it would take me ages. And then you, you put it on LinkedIn and literally you got stray likes, one of them being your mom, the other one being your dad, yeah. <laughs> and then a friend. So you, you put all that work and you get nothing. And I think what, what I've realized over time is that, first of all, podcast is a great way. I take so much notes. You know, I, I, we, we've had so many interesting guests. I've learned so much. It changed me as a leader. It changed me as a, as a, as a person. Um, you, you get nuggets of information that you can reuse for yourself. You get nuggets of information that you can reuse in conversation. Um, so, so, so first of all, learning a lot, but then I think it's a great, great way to create content in a very easy format. You know, in 45 minutes, you get content that you can share on iTunes, Spotify. If you record it on video, YouTube, then you can suck all the audio, turn it into text and then create article bits and pieces of, of LinkedIn posts, et cetera, et cetera. So it's really a great source to get the nectar of the content, some good sort leadership in an effective way. And I would rather speaking to someone, having question, having a conversation versus um, versus writing blog posts. My, my only <laughs> issue is that I always go off piste. You know, we've got, we always get questions and I get carried away because we've got so many interesting guests that it's difficult to keep to keep it to the subject sometimes but um, now it's a great experience absolutely loved it we'll carry on and hopefully next time you speak to me daniel will be at uh, episode 500 start exponential growth start doing five podcasts a week absolutely i may i may become a podcaster <laughs> full-time get the big fancy headphones i, I would like that yeah I, i'll tell your point it's always interesting to kind of let the uh, let the conversation evolve i feel like sometimes with um kind of strict written format it can be kind of easy to just kind of go down that like straight road and maybe not get caught up in some of the more interesting details yeah 100 percent. it's also you know when you've got someone touching onto something quite interesting and you feel that the audience because we kind of know our audience relatively well you just want to explore a little bit further and i think if i was the person listening to the podcasts i'd like that when i listen to a podcast i want a real conversation i want to hear passion I don't want to hear something to script it. Mm. You know, when it's boring after 15 minutes, I just want to fall asleep. If it's a little bit more animated, hey, I want, I want, I want to have more. So, yeah, we try to keep it easy. We don't try to be too smart about it. We just try to be real, honest, get some good people, have some great conversation. Um, but yeah, it's a great, it's a great thing to do. So I'm glad you guys are doing it as well. 
it's um it's, it's good for the business well, of course you know we're uh, learning from the best you know getting some uh, <laughs> getting some insights that we can Hopefully. steal the format <laughs> yeah no, but I mean, and obviously I wanted to get get you on just to kind of talk about, because you've had kind of a long career in the space. You've worked with a lot of companies and a lot of people in the B2B tech kind of sphere. And I just wanted to know from your side, obviously you approach it from kind of the sales acceleration side and working with companies to really drive that kind of growth. Whereas we come at it from the public relations and marketing side, sort of looking more at the the brand and sort of the general awareness. So... I kind of wanted to talk to you a little bit about the the part that operatics plays in kind of the general industry. Like, for example, in your materials, you talk about these outsourced sales development teams. Do you think, compared to kind of normal sales departments, what kind of role do you see these outsourced teams playing in the in the future of the industry? Do you think this will become more commonly used? Well, hopefully a big one. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, look... Uh... The, the, the reality, Dan, is that um, outsource sale is, is a turnkey, okay? Uh, it's a way to get going very quickly. The, the way we look at what we do, we look at what we do through the lens of our clients. So we are very client-centric. So depending on the size and where the client is in, in, in his journey, uh, we have different used to them, okay? So there is a lot of use case, right? So if you start from the beginning, let's say you are a startup, you come out of stealth, um, you've got some great engineer in the team, you may have a sales leader, you may have a marketing leader, but you've got a product, you've got customers on the other side and you've got a big barrier in the middle, okay? And those guys want to break that barrier. So for those people, they will see us as the the data provider, right? Data is important, data uh, is important. Uh, the playbook provider, so how do we go about uh, creating a formula so we don't just get leads and meetings and demos, but we actually have a process. We have a, a tested formula that can be scaled. Um, and, and then obviously they look at the results. So getting some, some short-term results because usually those people don't have a ton of money. So you can't go elephant hunting. You've got to go, uh, I'm trying to find about a smaller animal. You've got to go pig and <laughs> Right? Yeah. A pig is good to eat. Well, fully. Uh, but uh, you, you've got to go for the smaller animal and you want to bring smaller deals because you need to show success quicker versus working with an enterprise bluebird we, we, we're happy to wait 19 months, 18 months to get the big deal. So the first thing, so, so if you look at the startups, um, they are very much looking at us in a more integrated way of we are basically the ibuprofen to the edec. Okay. We want to do sales. We don't really have the department. We want to do it with you because you know the market. You have data. You have intelligence. You worked with two or three of our competitors or people who are in the same space. So basically, you're going to accelerate what we are doing. Most of our clients at this stage are extremely smart people. Okay? So technically, they could do what we do. No problem. But we do what we do and we are becoming the best at what we do because we've taken slap. We made mistake in the past. And we have processes to make sure we don't take slaps again. So while those people are fantastically good and probably extremely intelligent, even more intelligent than us probably, and they would definitely get the right sales team in place, it may take them 12 months, 18 months to get to where we would go in six months. So really we're saving time, we're saving energy. Um, and quite frankly, we're not that much more expensive. Okay. Well, if you look at everything, when you include data and the cost of sit and all that. Now, 
you've got kind of the mid-sized organization. So I would speak about, you know, someone who is just prior to becoming IPO or sorry, Serie B, C, D organization. They are growing, they are international. Uh, their pain is slightly different. Their pain may be that their average deal value is not going in the direction they want it to be. They are seeing the average deal value going down. They may have become victim of their own good marketing, which means that their sales team is not really proactively doing account-based selling, but maybe waiting for inbound leads to come in, waiting for the thousands of dollars invested in that event for the leads to come in, and then we follow up on leads. So they are, they are maybe more in an inbound response management approach, which is speaking to people who have shown interest versus actually proactively reaching out to accounts where they could have a bigger deal and creating the demand. And usually they come to us and say, look, we've, we are very successful, but we want to increase our average deal value. We want to enter some accounts that we are struggling to get into because our marketing outreach is not getting, is not yielding the, the results we want to open up those doors. So we need a new, new solution. So we come almost as the, the mercenaries and the door opener. And, and usually, you know, if you are in the UK, that would be the FTSE 250. If you are in France, that would be the SBF 120. These are the 250 larger accounts in the UK, the 120 larger in France. In the US, you've got the global 2K, which is 2,000 accounts. So it's usually the big accounts. And our role is to identify the buying centers, identify the right personnel, the right buyers in those buying centers, engage with them, convey the value proposition of our clients, and then nurture them until they have a compelling event. So they want to engage with our clients. And then you've got the large one, very large. So very large would be some of the top companies in the world. I can't mention any words of our, any name of customers, unfortunately. But the very large one would usually use us around what's not their core business. Okay? So we only work for B2B technology company, but let's say, to take an analogy, like my elephant and pig, which was terrible, uh, I'm going to take the analogy of BMW, all right? I call you and say, hey, Dan, I'm working mm. for BMW. I'm pretty sure you're going to think M3, M5, M6, nice cars. But maybe I'm trying to sell the motorbike, mm. the actual motorbike that win the Paris-Dakar, that are fantastic motorbike to go in the sand, to go off-piste and everything, which is one of their division. So that's usually where we are. You know, would, um, would SAP need us to sell their ERP system? No, because everybody knows that if you're an ERP system, you need to consult SAP. Would Google need us to sell their search or advertisement? No, because everybody knows that Google do that. But Google may have cybersecurity products. They may have some other solution that needs to be pushed to the market. So this is really where we are operating. We are almost helping the startup within the big company. Uh, and we are helping them, again, to write the playbook, scale their team, and create that pipeline generation engine. So, And you know that if you put 10 in, you're going you're gonna to get 100 out. If you put 20 in, you get 200 out. So it's about scalability and, and I guess, um, forecastability of outcome. So that's, that's kind of the three use case from very small, medium-sized, and very large. It's really interesting the points you make around obviously the the priorities of the people kind of you're in contact with these companies you know would you say like within these larger companies you talk about maybe they've got this kind of like you said startup within the corporation can you see similarities in the kind of the mindset of like someone who's heading up one of these more independent business units versus 
kind of a scrappy startup or do you think they've already got that i hesitate to say corporate mindset but do you think that's a kind of structural approach that kind of even when you are selling bmw's motorbikes or google's cybersecurity products do you think that is a role suited yeah. to the more entrepreneurial people in the business you know the it's funny because I guess I don't want to make generalities. It's difficult, but I think my general sentiment on your question is that the small company want to act like the big one and the big one want to act like the small one, right? <laughs> so the small company, they want the, the, the shiny toys and the, the golden spoons and the, the diamond encrusted things that the big one have. And they want solution. They want technology. They want people. They want processes because they need it. And the big one, wants to be as agile, as entrepreneurial, as crazy sometimes, as uh, risk-taking, as the small ones are. So it's kind of interesting because I think that there is traits of both and they are both going into the same direction, which is kind of meeting in the middle. Um, and it's, it's, it's interesting also, most of our clients, when it comes to marketing and sales professional, or even CEOs, tend to have like... A, they tend to have a stage of companies and it's not true for everyone. You know, you've got CEOs that have, that have evolved with the company. So um, I was listening to a podcast with the CEO of Salesloft. You know, we took it to, 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 to a billion dollar company. You, you've got CEOs that really start with a, with a, from my garage to multi, multi billion dollars organization. And it's the same guy running it. That's fine. That's, but, but I think that's not a majority of organization. I think most of the organization have stages. And you would have the founder guy that usually go from stealth to Serie B. And then after Serie B, maybe come too big. They may want to develop something else and start again mm -hmm. from scratch from that garage. Okay. And it's the same, for, the, same, the same for the commercial leader. You would have people that can build and almost the MacGyver that comes in and they are the coach player. So they sell and build the team and sell and build the channel and help a little bit of marketing and do some public speaking and everything. And then you've got the scale man, the guy who is, or the scale woman. So the person that come next and actually know how to go from 10 salespeople to 150 salespeople. And they, they do it very well. So all that is, you've, we almost feel that there is specialties and you've got people that specialize in certain stages of growth. Um, and, and of course, you've got a few that does everything, but or may, may do all the stages, but, but we see that a little less. So... It's almost like companies are, when they evolve and when they move from caterpillar to butterfly, it's almost like, it's actually like a caterpillar to a butterfly. They may do it with a completely different team. Okay. Mm. Um, and that's interesting to see that happening. You know, sometimes it's a fantastic thing. Sometimes it's a bad one because new management could mean risk for organizations like yours and mine because new, mm. new, new, new leader may mean new ID, may mean new company I used to work with before, um, which is fine. But, Right. We, that evolution is almost like adolescence. It's usually a painful one and, and you need to change yourself to be able to get to the next stage. So it's, it's a people, process, technology change almost for each stages. Yeah, I've noticed people, process and technology is a kind of a phrase you use quite a lot throughout the materials. Is that the way you see kind of the basic elements of, you know, how businesses function, kind of what needs to be prioritized as, you know, do you have the right people? Have you implemented the right processes and Obviously, do you yeah. have the technology to make it all work? And exactly in that order. So for me, that's, that's the order that matters. Um, you know, people are, well, 
particularly in my business, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a people business, right? So I, I, I technically, we sell people, we sell time and, and, and the material. So we, we sell people. People are extremely important to us, okay? Um, and that's the number one criteria. You want to recruit people because they are capable of doing the job that you want to put them in front of. But you want to recruit people because, you know, they can come on the journey. So one of the phrases that we use in interviews is like, look, if you're looking for a job, then here is the door. We're not interested in you. If you're looking for a career, welcome to the family. You know, we're going to get you on board and we're going we're gonna to develop you. Um, and the processes, the second element is important because that's how you change from being a startup to a scale-up. When you've got processes that you know have been tested, you know are working, that's really how you can get your next layer of managers to come to a proven situation. So the way... The, the analogy, I love analogies, but the analogy that I would use is that, you know, if you want to, uh, if you want to create a road from A to B in the jungle, right? So you will go with your machete and that's the first guy going. So like you need a good leader mm-hmm. for that. Someone who does the right things, not a manager who does the things right. So you need a good leader. So they will go with their machete and they will do the first trail. Well, Bob was doing that one day as he's going through his machete, may get bitten by a purple snake. Okay. If he, get, if he dies that evening, then you need to write a process saying, if you see a purple snake, run away. Got it. Okay? And what you want to do, you want to make sure that not, the next person won't get, uh, won't get beaten by the purple snake. I, I'm very sorry about my analogy then. I, <laughs> it's a very colorful way of that, um, you know, that common saying, like for every, for every rule that you, you, know, you look at and you're like, oh, why, have, you know, why is that in place? There's always a story behind it. And, you know, failing is part of progressing. And, and that's what people don't get. So the, the, you have, we give people the authority to fail. And as far as they give us the respect of learning. Mm. So if Bob gets bitten by the purple snake and his friends around him look at him and say, oh, all right, fair enough. And they don't try to process around him. And then someone else and it happens again. Then that's insanity. We have a problem. We have bad leadership because they should know and they should protect their people. So... But, you know, those processes, they come from facing them, particularly as you grow an organization. At least that's my experience because I'm, I'm a founder that has never run a company as big as the one I'm running right now. So it's not like I've seen the movie before. We are literally writing the plot as we go. It's like, <laughs> it's like the people who wrote Friends or, you know, whatever series that you would watch. You know, we write as we go and we've got to, 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 to make it still entertaining. But it's... For us, we come to an obstacle, right? Or an hurdle. We look at it. We try to jump it. And we may miss the jump. So we come back and we speak about it. We create a process about not doing it again. But then when we found a way to go above it, it's about creating a process. And this is the success criteria to make it happen. And that's, those processes are extremely important. And then the technology, from my perspective, comes. We see particularly a lot of a lot of our American friends, colleagues, clients like to put technology first. What's your tech stack, right? From my perspective, if you don't have a blueprint, there is no point having a tech stack that will automate things that you don't know about. You, you can only automate mm-hmm. a recipe that works, okay? And that's where the technology, I think, comes. And I think if you try to buy technology like automation in particular, artificial intelligence, or all that sort of great things that are probably the technology of the future, you realize that in the sales process, 
You know, and if you've got a good salesperson from the technology company selling you the stuff, they should ask you about the processes. They should try to suck what you know to do and put that in their system. Okay. But without the processes and trying to get the processes after having the technology also doesn't work from my perspective. So it's kind of the RDR first and then bringing the technology to make it better as you scale because you need to get the data and you need to be able to have visibility. You need to be able to zoom in. But yeah, people, process, technology in that order, critical. Yeah, you made a couple of really interesting points. That I think I like the point you make around having to lead kind of technology acquisition by, you know, how are people using it? Do we have the processes in place? Is it supporting us rather than, you know, we buy the technology and it's like, all right, now, now where do we put it? What do we use it for? And you kind of end up using it unnecessarily. I saw a um a quote in one of your recent um articles that was talking about you know as many organizations are becoming increasingly customer centric having that unbeatable cx strategy has become like a focal point for many business leaders and sort of talking about how good cx can lead to increased customer loyalty opportunities for you know contract expansion organic referrals reviews that kind of the lifeblood of new business essentially is you would you say that like beyond you know what how you can help your clients as the ceo of an agency you prioritize from your end how can i provide that customer experience to my clients make sure that the processes we're implementing for them are, you know fitting into their structure and the kind of the results they want to be achieving so first of all super fresh so you, you're talking about the episode that we did with uh sally norosi with uh norosi who's mm. um uh, head of cx at uh, at salesforce um fantastic episode so i was telling you in the introduction about learning so much sometimes when i speak to people i probably took three pages of notes <laughs> when we spoke to sally um <laughs> Yeah. And I think, you know, if I'm completely honest with you, I don't think we are here yet from a CX perspective. I don't think I will ever be happy with how we treat clients. I think there is always a better way to treat clients. There is there is a better way to put the red carpet service out there. But we are trying to treat clients better. Now, is your question about how important it is or is your question about how do we go about it? Well, I think... Obviously, it's, you know, as as you've said, it's, it is such a such a crucial thing. But I, I'd like to know, especially in the context of where we are today, you know, we're in this post-COVID sliding into a recession tech and B2B tech as an industry. Is... Yeah, it's, it's fun time at the moment, you know, COVID, <laughs> recession. <laughs> I'll just start listing off a really long list of depressing events. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's sort of like in this this time we're in now, do you think customer experience has really become that? you know, maybe not like a, a golden ticket, but kind of has kind of sharpened a lot of decision makers focus on, you know, leading what the customers need. I think it becomes more apparent because people are struggling to get new business. But I think the people who are just realizing that CX is important because the time is not great out there are, are not really smart. <laughs> I think um, you have to put your customer experience at the forefront of what you do. It's interesting when we speak about CX and customer experience because we are we know organizations that just think they've got it sorted because they've got three head of customer success, right? And those people speak to clients, they do exit interview, they bring the stuff, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. My view is that a customer success person, and I think that's Sally's view as well, and uh, you know she works for one of the most interesting company in the world. You know, people who really have the the, the, the investment capability to invest in, in, in becoming the best at all those functions that are kind of new function in the market. Uh, I, I guess my point is that you, you, you've, you've, got to, you've got to invest in making everybody in your organization customer success, right? From the lady on the switchboard 
to or the man on the switchboard to the to the person who is doing the cleaning in the evening, right? So someone that comes in the evening, you know, how can that person be customer success? I want every single interaction that we have with customers to be customer success. So it's 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 not about just doing following a customer success playbook. It's how do you get your CEO, your marketing director, your CRO, your technology guys, your engineers, your sales guy, of course, your marketing guys, of course, your customer of, um, you know, after point of sales people and everything, everybody should be customer mm -hmm. success. Everybody should care about customer success. If you need to wait for a recession to start thinking about customer success, you're going to lose a lot of customers because it's not the way it should be, right? It's, 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 I think it's a, a too little too late. I think it's something that needs to be in the agenda of everyone because it's common sense, right? Happy customers mean retention. Retention means that you keep the revenue from your customers. Lifetime value, lifetime, you know, the, the, the tenure. These are really good for the valuation of your business. They are really good for you to show that you are running a good business, that you have got good services or good product. But also an happy customer is likely to expand their business with you. And I think having a customer calling us and say, hey, I want to expand and do more with operatics, that's probably the best gift you can give me. Because I don't care about the rest. If you do that, that means that we've done something meaningful for you. So you want more of it. And that's great. Returning customers, people who expand with you, that's, that's, that press my dopamine button. That really makes me feel good. It's actually maybe oxytocin. <laughs> maybe that sort of love hormone that makes me, uh, makes me happy. But, you know, these are the long run stuff. They are important because it may take six months, 12 months for a customer to actually expand with you. Versus scalping someone for a deal, for a 10K dollars deal or whatever, may give you like that little shot of dopamine and make you feel happy. Keeping that client for a long time and getting that expansion, that's, that's what's cool. But then an happy customer is also the, is your best marketing tool. They could be the radiator outside there that just spray your amplificator that will spray the world around you. People will amplify your message. People will speak about you and do the, the, what we call the customer advocacy. And there is so many communities and you know how it works, right? You want to buy something. If I want to buy something, I call my friend who is using something. That is what I want to buy and ask them what they think about it. And if they've got recommendation and they are likely to give me the name of a couple of companies and, you know, maybe because I'm lazy, that's my research done. And I may call them and just pick one of the two, but recommendation word of mouth is such a powerful tool so you know for the people who would not have seen that before i think that yeah they need to wake up someone needs to slap them across the face and put customer first this is this is super important i mean people your own people your company and your customer first is super critical that reminds me of something you were talking about earlier when you talk about you know specific leaders are kind of specialized for different growth phases in a company and then you sort of went on to talk about how so much of learning so much of knowing which processes to put in place is failure is kind of making mistakes so for example say you've got um you know a ceo who's really good at the you know startup phase when you're just like scrapping like the business together you're you're really small you're just putting all these processes in place but then maybe you might need to appoint someone else who when you're kind of scaling up and how that might you know in a way be linked to if you are the ceo and you keep kind of going to you know you're specializing in these companies who are at their very early stages you might be encountering the same kind of issues so you 
get very experienced in a certain type of failure if if you get catch what i mean do you think like maybe there isn't there is an effect in sort of the last few years where you know there has been a lot of venture capital cash you know the market's been a bit more kind of kind to people sort of still learning the ropes do you think there is sort of an extent to which kind of the longer you've been around the more up and down cycles that you've kind of experienced you think those people maybe are in a better position to ride out the position we're in now oh yeah of course of course yeah i mean the we've seen a, a lot of first time ceo first time cro's first time cmos first time ctos maybe ctos less but uh, the, the people who've got like a bit more of a customer facing getting extremely anxious you know and 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 pushing the anxiety on the st- or the stress on us and our team P- probably more around covid uh, because you still have your number to make and it's difficult to keep calm when you never seen the tsunami before. You know, it's coming at you, what you're going to do. I think the people have seen it and the, the local may be saying, well, yeah, you need to do that, that and that. That's normal, just calm down. Um, hmm. And that's a fact, you know, I mean, uh, I've been speaking to people. So most of the people that you speak to, I, I, I was you know, running, not a business, but running teams and doing the same sort of business in 2008, 2010. So we've seen the, the the downside there, like the, the recession and then the, the, the internet bubble, you know, bursting again, sort of. Um, and, and quite frankly, most of the people that were there in 2008, 2010 saw it coming again. I mean, you just need to look at the valuation of companies going crazy, like the Tesla and the this and that. And, you know, it's that startup been going for three years. They've, they're already a, a unicorn with, with, with five, um, you know, with five horn, you know, it's like a, it's a five billion company. They've got literally five clients. Um, so you're like, okay. Um, at some point, the cycles need to burst. I don't think it, once you've seen one, you see them coming, you know, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's, you smell that the, 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 the storm is about to come. It's something that you would see. It's in the air, it's the humidity, it's those kind of flying hands coming off the ground and everything. So, oh, okay, a storm is coming. So, you cannot feel it coming and you prepare for it. So we, we technically prepared for it uh, from the beginning of, uh, of 2022. 2021 was a great year because after uh, a, a bit of time, so I should not say that, but after a bit of a downtime or a, a slowdown in the economy, guess what? Everybody starts spending again. So after recession, you've got, you've got fantastic times. So we knew that post-COVID, things will be bright. Um, so 2021 was fantastic, but 2022, we started to focus on companies that were maybe a little bit less startup-y. Hmm. So instead of working with the Serie A that may run out of cash, people that are you know, using debt to finance our services and things like that, maybe we start to work with companies who actually generate their own cash okay, and don't need to wait for the next round of investment to pay their employees. And we've done that very successfully. Um, so we had a bit of a slowdown in Q4. We had a bit of a slowdown in January as well. So Q4 was not great. November, December, slow. January, slow. So three months of slow. And now things are back to normal. Yeah, I, I think for the people who have not been there, I mean, you've got no idea how to write that. I remember the first time I was still young and I was not the CEO of the company. So I was probably taking more of a sit back and less of a, less of a stressful situation, if you will. But I was with someone who saw what happened in 2000, you know, so someone who saw one before. And I remember meeting with people who were speaking about what happened in the 70s or in the 80s. And <laughs> all those guys are telling you, look, it's going to be pretty poor for three months, six months. 
But then guess what? We live in a capitalistic world. Things will have to go back to normal because hey, people need to make money. Organization needs to make money. Government needs to make money. It's the way it is. It, but we have cycle where when we get too greedy, we explode. And um, and it will happen more and more often if 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 PEs, VCs, and all those funds and everything keep on evaluating or overvaluating assets. Would you say you, when you see the markets going a certain direction, you can sort of see the trends going towards something you've seen before? Do you use that as an opportunity to change your tactics? Well, that's exactly what happened in 22. Yeah, to your point, then, this is, this is exactly what happened in 22. I was in California, I think, at the end of 2021 for an event and met with a fair few people. And really around the table, the sentiment was, that can't carry on. That cannot carry on. Literally, that company that got investment last year was valued at 200 million. The same company, pretty much same product this year at the same stage got valued at 1 billion. So people look at each other and they're like, something is off here. That cannot carry on. When you know that it's not carrying on is when you've got to think about, okay, if that doesn't carry on and something bursts, so basically money become more expensive, um, what happens? Well, what happens is that uh, it's more difficult to get business. Um, you will have deals that come off. So you've, you've got to prepare for it. You know that uh, if your pipeline coverage, so pipeline coverage is, uh, I don't know, if you need to do 100 pounds of revenue, you know that you need three-time coverage. So you need 300 pounds of pipeline to get 100 pounds of revenue. So that, that's 3x coverage in normal time may become 6x coverage in downtime because you'll have three of the six that will tell you, you know what, really like your solution, really want to move forward, but I spoke to my CFO, budget frozen, can't do it. Or let's butt in touch, we speak again in 2024. So you've got to have a bigger pipeline coverage. And that's why, in a way, uh, for organizations like Operatics, who are technically pipeline generation organization, this situation could be a double-edged sword. So if you change your tactic on time, you can actually really succeed from it. But it's about being smart. It's about reading. It's not about reading the market. It's about getting the signals. And then you want to adapt to the signals. So so when, when the wave actually hits, you know it's coming. Are you going to do fantastically well out of it? No, but you want to survive it. That's the most important. And the way we do it at Operatics, we want to survive it without making any redundancy. That's definitely an interesting angle in terms of there is a lot of rewards out there for people who can kind of accurately predict the kind of general movement of the the market, kind of what what's coming up and what's uh, you know what we need to be aware of. You spoke a little bit about how you might need to increase like the size of the pipeline when you kind of have tougher economic times. You know, people's CFOs are getting a bit tougher. Do you think? I wanted to get a little bit more into discussion around how kind of sales interacts with other departments like marketing and brand and public relations and these kind of things in this B2B tech it is notoriously quite a long sales cycle, which obviously is why you've um, helped found a company that uh, accelerates it. Talking about, do you think in these times, sometimes it's difficult for the smaller brands to kind of compete with, you know, that old saying, you know, no one ever got fired for buying IBM. Do you think that in tougher economic times, it's more likely for, you know, acquisitions to be signed off if they've got a Google or a Salesforce or a Microsoft in front of it? I would say in any time, it's, it's more difficult for the small vendors. You represent a risk, you know, getting your first 10, 15 clients is, is pushing a very, very heavy stone uphill. 
Uh, and then after that, you've got a bit of momentum, but, you know, and particularly when you go after the, the really large accounts. So you want to sign a City Group, you want a Wells Fargo or, you know, uh, HSBC in the UK. I don't know where I just take banks, but let, let's say, let's say you, you want those banks. I mean, those guys are very, very, very highly, mm. uh, powerful procurement department, right? And those guys don't just look at the technology. They look at the risk as well. Um, and, um, and yeah, I think there is an element of risk. There is an, it's, it's much more difficult. So I don't think in recession in particular, it's, it's difficult. I think what you need to know, no matter if you are big or small, is are you a nice to have or are you a must have? If you are a nice to have, it's a little bit more tricky and you may have to do something slightly different in the way you operate for, for, to wait for the wave to come across. If you are a must have, then you, you, you've got to scale, man. It's like, uh, look at Zoom Info during COVID. Uh, not Zoom Info, sorry. Um, Zoom. Zoom, yeah. Zoom, Zoom, uh, Zoom conferencing. I mean, fantastic time for them, right? Where the client, Pearl Secure, right? Those guys, they sell VPN. A VPN is what allows you to have a secured connection from working from home to your server in the office, okay? Mm. Right. When everybody's in the office, when you've got uh, 20,000 people in the office worldwide and they, they're working on their laptop from the office, you don't need that. Or you may have one, but you may not think about scaling a proper one or whatever. When everybody's got to work from literally from today to tomorrow and we don't know for how long, and you've got those guys from the account department that technically are always working from the office, they're not the sales guy who's traveling, they have never left the office before for the last 20 years, um, you need to buy a solution. So when you are a must-have, it's a very different situation than when you are nice to have. Um and then coming back to your point, I think it's, I think investments, what I would say is no matter if you are big or small, it's a bit like CX. You should not sell your technology. You should sell the, the value of your technology. You should, should sell the return um, because you, must, you, you may have a nice to have that actually helps your prospect or client to save money, to save jobs, to redeploy people to do something else. Um, so really focusing on the business case is, is what makes sense. Because if you've got a business case that actually help people to make more money or reduce their cost, while people have to reduce their cost because you need to do the same. You know, if you take cybersecurity, for example, the company still need to be secured. We can't allow to just leave the door open because, you know, we've got a little bit less budget. But the CFOs are probably removing their budget a little bit and they may go to the, CIS or the head of cyber or whatever and say, hey, I need you to do the same with 80% of the budget. And that's where a small vendor may be more appealing than IBM saying, no, that's our pricing. And quite frankly, for that 60K, 70K deal, don't care. Go with those guys. So you can play both hands, but I think you need to understand what value you are delivering and make sure that the value is, is at the taste of today. I think, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point around value because obviously uh, one thing I wanted to talk about is your, if I'm understanding it right, Operatics is kind of resource allocation model where, you know, you like to see your team members kind of working as an extension of the client sales and marketing yeah. teams. You know, you can have the best products in the world. Do you see that this is kind of where the value of marketing and other kind of brand or comms related departments comes in where the salespeople are the ones who kind of reach out and make that contact and the the marketers and the the comms people are the ones who kind of 
help position the product and help show the value sort of more more broadly because obviously it's a it's one of the more difficult things to do is build that trust if, if i understand your question correctly i think all departments are kind of critical and they all need to adapt sales guy needs to adapt and probably change their message based on the fact that people have less uh, uh less of a less of a budget to invest so you've got to think about that um We've seen some of our clients relatively large actually being helpful in the market. And our marketing team came up with the idea of giving the software for free because you still need to be protected or you still need to do data, whatever, or you still need to have your API working. You still need to develop stuff, maybe DevOps or big data or business processes and say, look, we're going to give you the software for free for six months because we think that you, you need something. And quite frankly, it doesn't change our life here. We just need to invest a little bit. But if it's a way to invest in getting you as a client in the long term, let's do it. So you could have those tactics. And I think having a smart marketing department, a smart sales team, I guess to reformulate what I'm saying is that those two working together, sales and marketing, when times are tough, is very important because... Your sales team are the people speaking to the prospect. So they are the people getting all the objection, what's happening in the company. They give you a sentiment or a feeling for what's going on in the market. Then you bring that back to marketing and marketing can take it to make some decisions about it. Okay. And you may run your marketing and say, well, look, working six months with that client cost us as a cost for the business. It cost us 20 grand. Okay. That's what it cost us. Okay. Obviously, we charge them normally 200K for that and we make lots of margin, but that's the cost to us, okay? Marketing person may look at that and say, well, if I give the software for six months for free, it's basically taking 20K out of my marketing budget, but I could also use my marketing budget to do some other stuff. So then it's a decision you want to make. But usually what happens in those moments, people remove themselves from uh, physical events, are quite expensive so you know convention or you know industry events and stuff like that which are quite expensive so you get a lot of money back and then they redeploy the money uh mm. they redeploy the money in other way but i guess being nimble and being agile and communicating from sales to marketing is what makes the company wins because if you don't have that communication if marketing doesn't know what's happening in the trenches right um and if sales doesn't really, you know, or you need to have that understanding, basically. You need to have that understanding to come up with ideas. Mm. So, so I think all those functions are important to deliver, to deliver ROI. I think PR is important as well because you probably want to speak. But again, you've got to adapt your communication to the context in which everybody is. So again, how do you do PR? You need to get this feedback from sales almost to understand what to talk about. What are the objections? What are the pains? And then the pains will evolve over time. Do you say there is that kind of that ecosystem or like circularity of you've got kind of the sales funnel and, you know, everyone plays an important role, but you need to be listening to each other and you need to, so, you know, sometimes sales and marketing come up with good ideas to get people down the funnel, but then they, you know, you 100% need to be listening to the salespeople who are hearing these complaints and knowing what the what the barriers and the blockers and the, the pain points are. There is kind of each department relies on the other ones in a particular way. Yeah. I think there is a bit of, there is a lot of dependence and there is a lot of regrouping together. 
You know, we call it the penguins, the penguin movement. You know, when the you know when they when they fight huddling together. Exactly, you've got to huddle, and you know, at some points you get your butt cold because you're on the on the side of the other, and sometimes you are inside, but you can't stay for inside for too long because inside the other it may be like forty degrees, so you'll die. So you've got to turn around, and it's how do you protect each other, and and you've got to do that. And you what you do is you protect the mission of the company. You protect the company by huddling, rather than just if you stay on your own. You've got no chance of survival. I mean, we've talked. We've talked a little bit about the um, the economic environment we're in. I hope this is kind of a, a fair representation of you know most business owners. The primary goals are expansion and growth. That's sort of the the general drivers behind business. Obviously, you know sometimes those change. Sometimes there are other things that get pushed up a little. But have you seen these kind of goals? You know, how have you seen them change by you know the the people you're speaking to, sort of higher up at your at your client companies? You know. In these kind of climates, do you think spending on sales and kind of lead generation, that that's always going to be sort of a priority over things like, you know, international expansion or product development or, and I know you said people are important, yeah. but talent acquisition is definitely a thing that we saw sort of fall off a cliff at uh, some point last year. No, I think you're right. You, you, you've got to focus on what's right for your business. And maybe that expansion may not be as important as doing some other things. Um, for me, and that's me only, you know, it's, it's in my opinion, you should never stop marketing, never stop selling. Um, because I think all the all the seeds that you will plant during a downtime are not lost. You know, the reason why we did well in 2021 is because we spoke to lots of prospects in 2019. So when the time were tough and people are like, look, I can't work with you. We'll be like, all right, tell us about your organization, what you're doing. Do you want us to help you with a playbook for free? You want us to do some role play with your guys. Maybe we can do a bit of training. You know, we've got resources available. So we can help with in some other way. We don't need to charge you. And when the time is right, you know, we work together. I think it's a nice opportunity to be in the huddle with the market. So you don't need just to huddle with your company. You can huddle with the market. But so, so yeah, my motto is never stop selling, never stop marketing. But that's not the motto of, of all our clients. You know, we had a very big one when, when COVID-19 hit. And it was public because they actually did a press release. We just cut all their marketing spend, pretty much. So the people we're working with got fired. The Every vendors like us got fired. And we did well. And, and they're customer again now. They came back in 2021 and they came back even bigger now, which is good. But people have different ways to react at things. You know, the larger the organization, the more lethal the change can be because people are less in the detail. There is no personal relationship with the individual. You can't go to... Samantha will work with that company to say, how valuable are they? I just look at an Excel spreadsheet and bam, right? You've got to make it happen now. Don't care, make it happen, okay? So every everybody has a different way to deal with it. But I think the more strategic, longer-term return program, such as a geographical expansion, developing a new product, recruiting a new team that will develop a new thing. So the things that are a bit more like long-term return do get pushed back. I mean, this seems to be common sense. Some organization may not do it then, you know. So, but for me, if you want my opinion, I'd say I would focus on sales and marketing and I would focus on my customers and I would focus on making sure that the prospect who engage with have a fantastic experience with us. Yeah, well, I think it ties back to what we were saying earlier where different leaders have kind of a different experience. Someone who's seen lots of up and down cycles come and go might react more calmly, might do a bit more kind of evaluation of the situation versus someone who's, you know, only kind of come up through the good times and kind of makes more snap decisions. 
But I'd like to get a little bit more into, you know, we've spoken a lot about kind of your own your own thoughts and about the industry and how you kind of lead operatics and clients you work with. But I just kind of want to get a bit more of the backstory in terms of, you know, what drove you to co-found operatics and you know, how your experience in sales, you know, like were your first-hand experiences in the industry the reason why you chose accelerating the sales cycles as your niche in the market? Yeah, I mean, the, 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 the reason for funding operatics is that I've been in the industry. So we, we had a company called uh, Optima Consulting Partners. I was just an employee of Optima. That company sold uh, in 2010 to a Nasdaq-listed company called Rainmaker Systems. Um, subsequently, I became the, the managing director of, of Rainmaker in Europe. Rainmaker doesn't exist anymore. Uh, but um, yeah, let's say that back then I was not fully align with some of the strategy that I was told to deploy. Um, and, um, you know, I did it, I did it for a good year and a half and, and we had an earn out that we made. So, you know, we, we kind of felt that we did what we were supposed to do post acquisition. Um, but I was not really, I guess our voice were not really heard by, by the bigger company. And we saw the company not really doing well and we were trying to come up with ideas, but they were not really open for the ideas. So, we got to the point where we're like, look, we've got all the sideies. We're pretty sure we've got something here, but they don't want to do it. What you start doing is, well, let's formulate a plan so we potentially could do it ourselves because we do believe in it. We know the market. We speak to the people. We've got all those potential clients lined up, and, and that's it. You know, we just came up. We we were so sure that there was a gap in the market that he made the creation of operatics very simple for us. Like, I know a lot of people are like, wow, you need to have the... You take a risk and everything. For us, we didn't really feel that we are taking a risk. Okay. The only risk that we took is, is not taking any salary for the first, I think, 12 or 18 months or two years. I can't remember. It's a long time now. But we didn't take salary at the beginning to, to get going because we started from stealth without any investment. Just, I think, my business partner at the time put a little bit of his personal money in that he paid himself back six months later. But, you know, it's really about knowing that there is a gap in the market. You know that there is demand. You know that the offer is limited. You know that the demand is coming from people with money and power. And you realize it's, it's, it's very common sense. And then you need to put the services. And then things evolve. You need to create a brand, which is the next thing. You know, how do you create a brand that people trust? How do you create a brand? I mean, I think it probably took us a good five years for me to really feel that we created a brand. And and the day I felt that we created a brand, a brand is that we... Uh, I went to an event and I had the CEO of a company coming and sitting next to me and say, hey, I know Operatics. I've heard so many good stuff about you. I want to work with you, but I don't know if I can afford your services. And I'm like, oh, well. <laughs> that's, good. that's the day I'm like, okay, cool. Now we are known. People know that we do good and people think we are really expensive, which is fantastic. <laughs> um, but yeah, the beginning was very much gap in the market. We were in the industry why is nobody moving that way? People were doing different things, but not really moving the way we wanted to move. So it's slight differentiation in the business model, slight differentiation in the way we build up the team. So all our team is promoted from within. So we've, we've got a lot of culture and, and things going on. And because that's the scaling, there is a lot of small sales development, pipeline acceleration company, few, few guys working from their bedroom, you know, doing a good job because you've got good individual. The issue is to scale that. How do you scale it to 200 people, 300 people, 400 people? That's the difficulty. And um, 
you know, we still get bitten by the, the purple snake from time to time. <laughs> yeah, unavoidable. Uh, we, we, we thought something perfect, but we, 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 we're growing by anywhere over the last years, we've been growing by 30 to 50% year on year. So we always stretch a lot. Thank you so much for for agreeing to come and speak with me today. It's been it's been really interesting to um to kind of get your thoughts on all of this and obviously learn kind of what uh what started it all. Is there anything you wanna you wanna plug before we finish? Maybe the uh, the SDR handbook or uh... yeah, well the, the SDR handbook is available for us. I think the you know is available on the on, I think for free. So we're trying to again you know we we, we remove all the gate to our marketing content pretty much. So we used to ask you for your email address, which I don't think is much. If you want to get a guide that took us pretty much nine months to put together, uh, but but now you can download it without even telling us who you are. So you know, coming back to marketing strategy when times are being a bit difficult, we saw that wow, what should we do with the SDR and book? Well, there is probably lots of people thinking what should we do with the SDR, and we decided that giving it for free without even asking people who they are is is the best thing. So they don't have any concern about us trying to call them and get their business or whatever it may be. Yeah, no, maybe to finish in terms of, you know, I think what you are big on is where the market is going and, and what we are saying. I think coming back to people, processes, technology, I think there is a lot of fantastic technology, technologies coming, particularly in the world of sales, sales development, uh, conversational intelligence, you know, which is supported by a lot of AI, sales automation, which really gives time back to the employee and to the BDRSDRs, tools around data that make your life much easier to find data, to find the right prospect. All those technologies are fantastic. However, we should remember the other thing that we discussed about, which is put the prospect first, put the customer first. It's good to automate, but make sure you personalize, make sure you tell her, make sure you have a story to tell. Uh, so do your research, really. Um, but I think it's... Uh, it's a very exciting world. People will need to carry on selling. I hope that Q2, Q3, we'll see, we'll see the recession going. Hopefully, Vladimir will keep it quiet. Because uh, that'll be the last thing. We don't need that after COVID and the, the recession. So you need to calm down. <laughs> Hopefully, if you listen to us, Vladimir, please chill. Um, and, um, and we can all be happy again and do business and, you know, love each other. That sounds great. Uh, I love your, your vision for the future. Um hoping uh very crossed fingers <laughs> <laughs> but yeah thank you for thank you for joining me today hopefully we can uh speak again sometime soon absolute pleasure thank you then for having me bye-bye that was wavelength by resonance thank you for tuning in and please join us next time